The resurrection of Jesus is the sign of something new in our world and and for the world. It's not actually just a starting over, but it's a radical reaffirmation and renewal of the ordered and beautiful world that we encounter every day. This world that God made from the beginning, a world of variety and harmony and life and beauty. And we catch glimpses of this world Throughout uh, our experiences in sunrises, I saw a beautiful sunrise on the Cape about a month ago, in waterfalls, in mountain vistas, and in the human face. And particularly, we'll see two beautiful little human faces tonight who are coming to baptism in Harriet and Elena in a a bit. Um, The resurrection is a resounding reaffirmation of this beautiful world. Resurrection is God's way of saying, yes, I meant it when I said It is good, or it was good. No, it was very good. God's repeating that affirmation. But the resurrection isn't just a return to the paradise of Eden, to something that came before. It's a movement beyond it, to something new. We speak of new creation when we talk about resurrection, not as a way of either discarding or simply returning to the old, but as a way of affirming and then taking up what already is into something new. John's Gospel makes this kind of new creation thinking abundantly clear in numerous places. The Gospel begins with in the beginning as a way of reckoning back to the the first words of Scripture which speak of God's original creation. It's John's way as an author of signaling to his readers the story I'm about to tell is going to be the climax and the fulfillment of the story that began long ago in creation. In John's Gospel there are seven signs And seven, obviously, is a number that implies completion. But then there's an eighth sign, the first one in the new week, and that is the resurrection of Jesus, which then signifies, in John's unique way, the new creation has begun. It's of no less significance that, as we read in John chapter 20, that that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the first day of a new cycle, the first day of the new creation. And as if we needed any more evidence from John, he gives us at least one more uh, insight that's pregnant with meaning. I don't know if this is just preacher's license. I'd like to think that it's not. But when Mary looks up and sees the man standing by the tomb, she mistakes him for the gardener. Now, maybe it's just because gardeners were commonly hanging out in gardens with tombs. Probably so. But I'd like to think that the gardener's job is significant in this Uh, mistaken identity for Jesus that is perhaps not mistaken at all because a gardener's job is to cultivate creation it's to pull out creation's latent potential to tend it to make it fruitful and as the first man of the new creation as the second Adam Jesus looks the part of the gardener and he takes the part of the gardener ready to cultivate any and all who would follow him into this new resurrection life through the death of the cross Now, in our reading from Revelation 21, we catch a glimpse of where this new creation work that began on Easter morning is headed. And I don't know about you, but what catches me most every time I read this Revelation 21 passage is not the, and I probably should be, but it's not the beautiful dwelling of God with man, of this bringing together this marriage of the divine and the human prefigured for us in the Incarnation. But what catches my eye most every time I read this text is the absence, what's absent from the new creation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. So much of our world is pain and crying and mourning and death itself. These are the experiences that fill our everyday, ordinary lives. But they're absent in this beautiful vision that we get in Revelation 21 of the future that is coming. They don't make their way into the new creation. Every power that uncreates us and every power that uncreates God's world our own moral failures, our our justified self-centeredness, the evil in the world, both within and outside us, and death itself, these things are absent from the picture of where all of this is headed. All that shackles Adam's race from attaining its true glory as image bearers of God, all this is defeated. All of this is cast down, thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, if we had read Verse 8. All of it's thrown out. Now obviously, for those of us who live today, that final riddance of these uncreative powers that are at work wreaking havoc on God's world is a far cry or a far cry from our present experience. Even as we're about to bring these two little lives to the waters of baptism, which signify this passageway from the old world to the new, We who have lived a little bit longer, we who have been veterans of the experience of life, we want to tell them that this walk is not going to be easy. As much as we want to protect, defend, and insulate them, especially their parents, we also feel some kind of need to tell them of the toil and of the failure and the injustice and the shame, and the mourning, and the pain that will inevitably be theirs as it has been ours as well. I can remember my parents many times growing up giving me the often repeated lesson when things didn't go my way, hey Mark, life's just not fair. And I'm sure many of your parents gave you that lesson as well, and I've passed it on at times to my own kids. That's just a milder way, maybe a way that kids can understand a little bit better of putting the same thing. Life's going to be very challenging. So here's my question, this, the short question that I want to ask. So what then makes all this talk of new creation that John gives us windows into, both in his gospel and if we're to believe the tradition in the book of Revelation as well, with this great vision in Revelation 21, what makes this all more than just hot air or wishful thinking? Why is it that this can be something that animates our hearts and our lives and our minds and expands them? beyond what we only experience in the present. How can we stand assured of this vision and of this hope? And it's the reality of this weekend, and I say that um, purposefully, this whole weekend, from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, it's the reality of this weekend, the event of this weekend, which is just really one event of Jesus' death and resurrection that enables us to say with certainty that this isn't just hot air. The defeat of the powers that create the carnage in our world has happened definitively on the cross. Back in John chapter 12, in John's gospel, he tells us that the cross is the great moment of exorcism when the ruler of this world will be cast out and his long shadow with him. 
The devil and his powers of chaos and of death and of despair and of pride and of exploitation, all of these powers are vanquished at the cross. And without that death, there would be no new creation on the other side. We try to do this all the time as human beings and kind of create a new creation of our own strength and in our own way without the death of the cross. But all that's left without the death is just the old with all of its brokenness and powerlessness. That's all that would be possible. The powers that held the world and that held you and held me in bondage had to be cast out. They had to be defeated and they were decisively defeated at Calvary. Easter morning, what we celebrate today is the proof of that defeat. Jesus rises from the dead, the resurrection being a bit like the string on a long extended kite that tethers those two worlds together. The world of Revelation 21 that we can only glimpse and hope for and see in the distance. And the world of pain and suffering and tears that we know today. They're linked together by virtue of this death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. He has risen. And He's already there in the new creation. As Mary said to, her, to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she had seen Him with her own eyes. So, in light of Easter morning and Good Friday, we can cling to this hope of the new world absent all of those powers that wreak havoc on our lives. However hard or however challenging or however painful our experience in this world becomes. Easter morning is the guarantee. Jesus has won the victory. He has made the passage. And then we unite with him in that journey. Signified for us in the sacrament of baptism that we're coming to now. We're buried with Christ in his death. We're raised with Christ to new life. The life of new creation. And now we live with him assured of that final victory as well. And I want to close with these words. Jesus actually says this before he goes to the cross. That last night that he was with his disciples in the upper room, again in John's gospel at the end of chapter 16, this is what he says to his disciples. And I want you to hear this as you set out to live your life the rest of tonight and this week ahead. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus knows. He's not surprised by the experience that we're having day in and day out. He knows that it will be one filled with sorrows and tribulations and trials. But he says to us in the midst of this, before he goes and demonstrates the reality of this overcoming, he says, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart when you read that vision of God and man dwelling together. Of a world without pain and tears and mourning and sadness and death being gone. Because he has overcome the world. Take heart. You live with him. You reign with him. In the midst of your tribulations, take heart. He has overcome. Hallelujah. Amen.